0: This podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. Preparation for life.
1: Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugen and Afif Kafash.
0: Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to.
1: So grab your coffee, find a cosy spot and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the baby tribe.
0: What cosy spot is a parent going to find?
1: Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related.
0: Let's get to it. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast, the award nominated podcast. Did I mention that we're award nominated?
1: Oh my God, how long are we going to have to keep going with this? <laughs> until,
0: <laughs> until we possibly win. Until we don't win. And then, yeah. and then, and then, we, then never, we drop it. And then we never mention it again. The award nominated podcast in the category of best newcomer, might I add, which is fantastic because, you know, there was actually no parental category. In the awards, so I'm pretty chuffed that we got into the best newcomer.
1: I think we've done well.
0: We've done considering
1: we're just two random Joe soaps, well with obviously clinical backgrounds. Yes, but I mean, as in, don't sell us short. No, I mean, as in, we're not podcasters. Like we're we're now. Now, fairness, I will give Afif some credit here because you are a techie. Thank you. Like if you could see the setup here now, I mean.
0: Yeah. I, I do sometimes put an Instagram post of the setup. It looks very nice and tidy when you see the reels, but there is literally chaos all around it with wires <laughs> well, and things All I like can that. say is, guys, I just turn up. Yeah. I literally turn up and talk. But that was the deal. But, you know, I'm getting increasingly anxious of the chats you have with Anne on the way in and on the way out. And I feel that I might be replaced because you have these fantastic chats. And what did you ask my wife to do just now?
1: Oh, yeah, I did. I actually said I told her to uh, set up an Instagram page from because she's an anaesthetist.
0: Yeah, but they now like to be called an anesthesiologist.
1: Anesthesiologist. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they Why? were.
0: I don't know. I think to I think they used to be that well, they are anesthesiologists in the States. They're anesthetists in Europe and they decided to just go under the one umbrella term. All oh, right. OK. Yeah.
1: Well, anyway, I was trying to get uh, your good wife, who's an incredible lady uh, with a very, um, you know, a great background in her own right to set up her own Instagram page and pit it against a because I really want her to, her numbers to rise and see how a thief copes.
0: Yeah. And I think that she it's would actually, right. she, yeah, she would actually amass a huge following and surpass me in like a month. And but I, I think really,
1: it would be brilliant. I like don't want a, that to happen though. I guarantee all the mothers out there or... Mothers to be will be going, oh my God, we'd love to hear, to give tips before you have, you know, you go in for your, if you're going in for a planned section or, you know, things to be aware of. Yes. Could it turn to an emergency section? She's an obstetric
0: anesthetist. So she deals with, yeah. We should have put
1: that in there as
0: well. But she also does general anesthesia as well. And, As much as I hate promoting other podcasts, she was actually a guest on the Laura Dowling Experience not so long ago. Ah, We love Laura, so we can't. So you guys can actually go over and listen to that episode once you finish listening to today's episode, of course.
1: But you know what, guys, I'm trying to convince her to come on here. So you never know by the end of today, we might have her lined up somewhere.
0: I don't want her as a guest. I do. And I always win. Okay, we'll see. We're talking about plagiocephaly today, which is otherwise known as a flathead. Yes. And it's common. How common do you think it is? Oh, my God. Well, from my own experience, I see it a lot in clinical practice. Yeah. I mean, it can affect up to 50 percent of babies. So what do we mean by plagiocephaly? Well, the other term for it is deformational, which sounds horrible, or positional plagiocephaly, otherwise known as a flat head. And that's when a baby develops a flat spot on one side of the head or the whole back of the head. And it generally happens when the baby sleeps in the same position most of the time or sometimes because of problems with a side preference side preference, or stiff neck muscle. Sometimes it could be due to position in the womb. And we'll briefly talk about that in a little while. Um, yeah. Do
1: you know they actually uh, call if it's flat at the back of the head, it's brachiocephaly. and if it's flat to the side of the head, it's plagiocephaly? I think it's all bandied under one term. Okay, but that's what we would have always called it. All right, interesting. See, I'm teaching a few things too. Th-
0: there you go. I want to sort of clarify the type of plagiocephaly that we are talking about. There is a type of plagiocephaly or flat head that can develop secondary to premature fusion of the skull bones. Called craniosynostosis. In craniosynostosis, the deformity is caused by premature closure of the fibrous joints between the bones of the infant skull, which are called cranial sutures. And that needs a thorough examination and specialist attention. And that's one of the things we actually look for when we're first assessing a baby with plagiocephaly. But thankfully, that is quite rare.
1: Can you? Can I tell you something? This yeah. is I'll blow my own trumpet. Yeah, I've found it in two babies. and referred in, Fair and both play. have had surgeries. Fair play. So if there's surgeries under six months, actually, yeah, it actually like I've seen the two kids since like and like you wouldn't tell any difference now. They're
0: doing very well. Yeah, doing very well. That's great. So why, what is, what is Katie actually talking about? If you actually look at the skull as a whole in babies, it's actually made up of several different plates of bone and they are not tightly joined together at birth, but they slowly fuse throughout the first um, couple of years of life. And we all know about the soft spot on the top of the baby's head. That's part of four skull bones coming together, causing that little hole or you know absence of bone. And that slowly again closes over um, and it can take the first 18 months, sometimes longer for that to completely fuse. When babies are young, those skull bones are actually quite soft and they can be molded. And this means that the shape can be altered by pressure to enable it to become kind of flat if if things don't go as planned. So when a baby's head stays in one position, for example, for long periods of time, the skull can flatten. And as I said, the baby can sometimes be born with this flattening because of the tight space in the uterus. It can be commoner in multiple births sometimes when there is less room for a baby to be moving around freely. So what are the other risk factors for this happening?
1: So one we kind of know anyway, muscular torticollis. And that's where we've got a baby who favours one side and quite significant. So, They really struggle actually making any movement to the opposite side. Multiple births, as you said already. Prematurity as well, because they are going to be in the position and they're going to be nursed a specific way for quite a period of time.
0: And their skull bones are usually even softer again.
1: Yeah. And then back sleeping. So this is where you'll see the brachiocephaly, which I said. So if you have a baby that sleeps on their back in a, for a prolonged period of time. So when you see those really good sleepers that tend to sleep really long periods, they're probably more at risk of this. And this is why your PHN and um, anyone who sees your baby in the very early days really goes on about ensuring that we turn the baby's head manually ourselves from side to side for each sleep. So one sleep to the left, the next sleep to the right, and we keep alternating so they don't end up
0: favouring one side. And just going back to the muscular torticollis. So, what that is, as Katie described, is that it can, it's actually present from birth a lot of the time. And that's when one or more of the neck muscles is very tight. And the tightness keeps the baby's head to one side. And sometimes you can actually feel a lump in that side of the neck, um, indicating the degree of tightness in that muscle. And that kind of keeps the baby's head more to one side than the other. And that can be, uh, you know, dealt with as well as a cause. Did you know that it's commoner in firstborns? It's also, I didn't actually. Yeah, it's also commoner in males. And sometimes the use of instrumentation around delivery can slightly increase the risk of developing um, plasiocephaly. So what are the symptoms?
1: Well, uh, flatness on the head, generally yeah. speaking. Um, and that will lead, if it's very pronounced, it can lead to altering the face uh, shape as well. So you can have a more protruding forehead. Um, the ears can be offset as well slightly just due to the positioning. But it really does depend on the severity.
0: What is important as well is I want to tell you what is not associated with and um, it does not put any pressure on the baby's brain and development is actually not affected by it. I know that's a concern that a lot of parents come to me with, that they're worried that development of the baby is going to be affected by the baby's head shape. And that is not the case. And how we diagnose it, really, um, we do a clinical assessment of the baby, a thorough clinical assessment. One of the main things we look for, as Katie alluded to, is Is there evidence of premature fusion of the skull bones in your baby's head? And oftentimes we can sometimes feel a ridge between the two skull bones that is quite thick. That indicates sometimes that there's premature fusion and that needs referral to the craniofacial services where they deal with it with surgery and other means as well.
1: But even as the standard plate, like if we're looking at standard flatheads... Guys, all you have to look at and a lot of parents don't see it. So it's the first thing when I go to do any consult with my babies, Um, even as a lactation consultant, it's something they do a look at because sometimes when a baby's got a side preference that it can actually obviously impact then their feeding and how well that their movement is on the breast. So it is something to be aware of that like we generally will look, if you look at the back of your baby's head, you will notice that baby always tend to favour one side and a baby can favour a side, have a kind of favour to one side from as early on as 32 weeks in the womb and then we'll see it on the other side.
0: Parents are now thinking, Katie, how do we manage it? How do we treat it?
1: Firstly, I suppose if we're in it and we're in the throes of it, then we look at changing our baby's sleep position. So I suppose under six weeks, it's much easier for us to manually turn the head. So sometimes it's when the baby's settled, I turn the head itself to one side side or the other. So we try to move them over. If you're struggling with that and the baby's kind of fighting against it, then if you put your baby down in the crib on their side first, then gently just hold the head to the side that you're looking, uh, that you want it to stay on and then manually just rotate the body back. Actually can be enough, not gentler than actually turning the head itself from one side to the other. Tummy time. I don't talk about this enough. I talk about it loads with all my clients. Tummy time is so important. Um, The more we take the baby's weight, the weight off the back of the head, or the sides leads to um, obviously less pressure on the head, but also builds up the core muscles and those neck muscles as well. So whenever your baby's having an awake spell, do the tummy time and it can be chest to chest. And then from two or three weeks on, you could get them down on the floor. But just remember the tummy time is a bit like doing the plank. Afif. So none of us would just jump down and do a full minute of the plank. You build it up slowly. So it minute. might be
0: 10 seconds. I can do five minutes. No problem.
1: Oh, wow. He's really shaking about now. Well, for a small baby, we, they start with 10 minutes or 10 seconds and we build it up each time. So by the time your baby's about three months, we'd expect anywhere between five to 15 minutes of them being able to tolerate tummy time and then rotating between on their back and their tummy time. But it's really important that we do that as well.
0: Things to avoid: um, bouncers. Avoid babies' time in bouncers. I know it can be um, within reason. Within reason, yeah. yeah. I mean, not don't spend like yeah. you know hours and hours in in a bouncer. And also, um, as much as you can, avoid babies being in car seats unless necessary for travel. So yeah. don't leave your baby sitting in a car seat. Slings can be really good. Time. Yeah, take the weight off because that takes the baby's um, head uh, off off the ground. And you know, holding the baby upright during the day. You know, this the. Um, this links can help yep. with that. But if these things initially do not result in an improvement, we can often refer the baby to a physiotherapist that can actually help with um, promoting symmetric development of the baby's trunk yep. and the neck muscles as well.
1: And if there's a real concern, you just contact your public health nurse, they'll refer to the community paediatric physio and you'll actually be referred in there.
0: Yeah. And parents often ask me actually about helmets and bands. This is a big thing, actually. It is. And it's something that remains, I think, controversial. Now, that is not my area of expertise. I'll put my hand up. But I know that the specialists are moving away from using helmets and bands to promote the symmetrical development of the head. Because in the vast majority of babies, once they get off the back of their head, once they begin to, um, you know, sit, crawl and stand and remove the pressure from their head, these things will slowly improve because the head remains Plastic, meaning that it can still mold back into a normal shape. So the use of them is controversial and I would usually refer to the experts, but by and large, they're not routinely recommended.
1: It's really preventative. That's what we're looking at measures here is trying to prevent it being so significant um, and dealing with it. Even if you have worst case scenario, quite a significant flathead as the child grows. Yes, it might be slightly evident, but it's never to the extent of what you see when your baby's small. So we kind of grow into our heads as such. And that's where they're probably going now. We don't do any major... Uh, treatments um, like those helmets. And they're kind of more in the States.
0: In the vast majority of babies, it is something that will slowly improve. And I emphasize the word slowly. It can take months and months and months to slowly improve. Yeah. So it's not something that um, has a quick fix, but but the proper position, the proper um, approach that we described, things will get much better. Okay, moving on to our guest. So today we actually have Dr. Neve Lynch. So Dr. Neve Lynch graduated from the University College Cork in 1998 with various amazing prizes for surgery and clinical surgery. In 2010, she was awarded the Dennis O'Brien Fellowship and moved to Cork with her husband and young family to undertake research into seizure activity in newborns with hypoxic brain injury. In 2012, Dr. Lynch began her job as a consultant pediatrician in the Bon Secours Hospital Cork. She strives to provide an efficient but compassionate service to the children of cork and in 2016 she established ireland's first pediatric concussion clinic and traveled to upmc in pittsburgh to train in a world leading establishment. In the past four years, she has helped many children recover from concussion and successfully return to sport and normal life during the pandemic. And since Dr. Lynch has provided online education and information on child health and safety through her social media presence. So we're really excited to have her on today's podcast. This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. Evie offers personalized multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment ranging from consultants, high-end scanning and prenatal screening to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. The Evie's team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynecology and pediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact Evie today on 012933984 or visit the website at evie.ie for more information.
2: So
1: uh Dr. Neve Lynch we are so delighted to have you join us today for the podcast. Um do you want to tell us a little bit about your career to date?
2: Well I'm very old Katie. Uh I'm <laughs> I'm going to be 50 uh in November so I've been I it's it's a it's a significant milestone because we're having our 25th year college anniversary or college reunion this weekend so I have been a doctor for half my life now officially um so yeah so I graduated from UCC in 1998 so the last century so I'm a real dinosaur and then I went I did my internship in Cork then I went to Dublin to start my pediatrics I think a thief we probably met around those years um and worked in Temple Street Cromlin, and then went to I went to Nepal for a year to work with UNICEF and then I came back and then I went to Canada for two years to do a neurology fellowship and then I came back and worked with the RCSI as a clinical tutor and then moved to Cork.
1: So you've been a paediatrician for pretty much your most of your medical life.
2: Yeah, so after year one, so after the internship year, so since 1999.
1: I've, so huge amount of experience.
2: Yeah, I suppose you could say that. It's funny because like, you know, I'm one of the, you know, Uh, I think you're probably going to ask me about, you know, people who have inspired me and and mentored me um, throughout the years. And now that, you know, we're the next generation coming up, it feels weird to kind of, be the, the sort of the the elder lemons, if you like.
0: While we're on that topic, actually, it is something we wanted to ask you. So we might jump in and do that now. Who were your mentors and who did you look up to through your pediatric career?
2: A few probably remember all the, the, the legends from from Temple Street and, and Crumlin and the Rotunda. Um, like all of them just had such depth of knowledge it was just phenomenal and th- this was in the days like really before the internet and they just had it all in their heads you know it was amazing um obviously like the first person who helped me to get onto the pediatric neurology track was Brian Lynch um you know he was very helpful and sort of um gave me a steer and then Mary King obviously, obviously was phenomenal Joe McMenamin, all these people were just amazing.
1: And did you always know you wanted to go into neurology?
2: Yeah, so I always knew I wanted to be a paediatrician. And I very soon after, like when I was in medical school and I loved the neurology side of things. um, So then obviously it made sense to get into paediatric neurology. So that's how I ended up there. But you know, it's very important, I think, when you're at an early stage in your career to meet somebody who's willing to give you a bit of advice and a bit of a steer. So, you know, I I then tried to sort of replicate that as well. Another person who kind of came on board as a sort of a more official mentor, if you like, later on, the more in more recent years, was Tony Ryan, um, Professor Tony Ryan. He's he's a, a fountain of knowledge and and balance and, you know, kind of just kind of helping you to once you're established as a consultant where to go then after that you know what what do you want to do next what you want to do next kind of thing you
1: know so like obviously looking at your academic you know your academic life you're way up there so go back to when you had your first child like I know like as clinicians Mm -hmm. we have all this information and you're a pediatrician so you knew how to care for the baby how do you think it helped or do you think you did feel prepared when baby came when you had your very first infant
2: my first pregnancy was, the start of it was in Canada. So she was made in Canada. <laughs> um, and so I came back halfway through the pregnancy. Uh, and obviously the antenatal care is very different in Canada. Like everybody has health insurance beca- because it's a, it's a national health insurance. So everybody's treated the same. Um, it's, you know, the GP appointments are free. Everything's free. You know, there's great, great s- screening tests and support and uh, focus on mental health and all of that kind of stuff in Canada. And then I got on the plane and landed in Dublin and was completely on my own. Um so like the second half of my pregnancy I was very anxious. Um I was very lonely. Um and I think um having kind of done a lot of neonatal neurology when I was in Canada I was filled with, you know, all of the worst things that could happen and I was convinced that something terrible was going to happen to me and to my child. So I I found the pregnancy side of it incredibly difficult and stressful. Um, But I had no words to, I had no, because I had no, I knew everything about babies. I didn't know about being pregnant though. And I didn't know about the mental health side of pregnancy. I had no words to put on what I had, but I think I definitely had sort of antenatal sort of health anxiety. And afterwards, I'm pretty sure I had OCD um, because I was completely obsessed with like you know something bad happening to the to the baby um i remember giving her first bath and she pooed in the bath and i was convinced that she was going to get e coli sepsis convinced you know so it was that sort of extreme anxiety and because i was living in dublin with my husband who's not irish um, we didn't have family around. It was very lonely, very lonely, tough time, you know. And um, we, when we came back, there was a bit of, you know, it was in the middle of the sort of um, peak of the house prices. So we were renting a real crappy little apartment just behind St James's Hospital and. It was just like just not enjoyable. You know, the second child then we had the we had the house and we had you know the the two cars and all of that, and and that was much easier. And were you living in Dublin? Yeah, we bought our own house then at that stage. Um, and and the second time around was grand, like and I had a, an established circle of friends. Actually, talking about mentors, I can't I cannot uh, omit um Kira McDonald, she's an endocrinologist. Um she when I came back from Canada, Kira was working as a tutor for CSI as well. And then obviously I, I joined her and she just had a baby and she completely took me under her wing. She brought me, she did this really kind thing where she brought me to Dundrum and she's like, you need this, you need this, you need this, you need this kind of clue. Like, you know, I knew, I knew what to do if a baby was sick, but I didn't know what nappies to buy or, you know, what bottles to buy or anything like that. So she was like, this is what you need. This is what you need. You need this buggy, you need this carrier, blah, blah, blah. She was phenomenal. And I paid that forward subsequently with cousins and my sister because I just thought it was such a kind thing to do and that was a different kind of mentorship that was a mentorship into motherhood you know um and it was so valuable to have her there to sort of bounce things off and stuff like that. And that's
1: what a lot of parents actually mothers will say is that they look to their friends family or somebody to offer the support before the baby comes and I think we were already talking about this with another another guest in that you know the transition to motherhood, I think, sometimes can be harder than a big part of, of when you have your baby. It's just for you as a person to suddenly have this little person to look after and know how to care for. And I think as a coming from a health background that we know how to look after, like if the baby's sick or something else. But actually looking after and and feeling this onus on us to keep this baby alive mm. is huge.
2: Mm yeah and like I know how babies breathe and I know how their bowels work and I know how their kidneys work and I know that they will pee and poo and breathe but I could not believe that my child would consistently do that you know at you know so like I, I just I remember like at one point she was fast asleep in her her Moses basket and I wasn't sure if she was breathing and I got a bit of tissue and I held it in front of her nose to make sure that it would go back and forth I was that anxious like it was phenomenal and just not having anyone around and I think that's something that I I see in parents as well. It's this this lack of of support. The way society is, you know, we're fragmented. We don't have our extended family around us. And I always felt such relief when I went down to Cork, you know. And actually, was a big factor in us moving back to Cork was to have Famous. that that family. Support because you know, it's just you just need your mother to, would you ever cop on? Like, seriously,
1: but you know what? Like, that's you look at how long, like, even your eldest did, did you, by 15, like, that yeah. I still is, think is so prevalent even today. I think less people, more people are living away from family members, they don't have that support structure. And for the very first child that you have, I think you have to find a group, a friend, or just even one person that you can throw something off yeah. that will say, that's normal, that's not, you're doing great. Like, because honestly, it's just so frightening in those early days.
0: And even as a medical profession, I found personally, I don't know how you felt about it, neve is that my pediatric training didn't help much in trying to see what is normal. We are trained to recognize illness, what we are not trained to recognize wellness or what is normal. And I found that a challenge, as you said, is she doing okay? Is is she breathing okay? Yeah. Is, is everything, you know, and I, I found that my pediatric knowledge at the time wasn't a great help.
2: I, I found it a help when they were sick. So, um, you know, because I, I was happy to sit on my bronchiolytic child until I knew she had to go to hospital. Do you know what I mean? And I knew when she needed to go to hospital that's knowledge that parents don't always have. That's the kind of stuff that I like to share now, you know? Um, But yeah, the what's normal, what's not. Um, And and then the the whole, am I normal? Like, is what I'm feeling normal? You know, or maybe we both have normal, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like, so my first one had terrible colic and I really do feel that the sort of, and breastfeeding was a nightmare. Like, thank God I had the resources Um, to find a lactation consultant, you know, Nicola Byrne. She she came to the house and she literally changed my breastfeeding journey just with a few very simple interventions, you know. Um, but that sort of like so I was just pumping for three weeks, like I couldn't get her to latch, you know, I couldn't, I just couldn't, and there was nobody to help me, and only that I had the means to pay for that. I wouldn't, I would have stopped, you know? Um, So there was that. And it's like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with the child? You know, is there what's going on? And and just that sort of an outsider looking in and say, she's got it all. She's got the healthy baby. She's got the nice husband. She's got the dog. She's, you know, everything looks fine from the outside. But on the inside, you're just like, oh my God, like I'm actually, I think I'm going to go mad here.
1: And I think that will resonate with a lot of mothers because a lot of mothers in those early first few weeks, even the first few months will feel like that.
0: And the anxiety you describe Mm. is is very real, and it's something that you may not experience before having a child, and then it just multiplies. Never um, afterwards.
2: I've never like I never. I'm just generally at baseline not an anxious person, but I developed like some phobias, like I became very afraid of the sea. Because I thought this, you know, I might drown. <laughs> you know, I was terrified walking along the pier in Dunleary because I was sure that the buggy was going to somehow take control of itself and wheel itself into the sea with the child in it. Those kind of very irrational, you know, things, which in retrospect probably needed a bit of attention from a GP, but I didn't have a clue. And I didn't have my own mother there observing me, going, she's acting a bit weird you know so I just kind of was just in my head so much those for like my my first maternity leave like it just it was kind of miserable and
1: did you go back to work early or did you feel pressured to go back or did you actually I want to, to go to, back like
2: I mean I was I was still on that track of trying to become a consultant you couldn't take time you couldn't take extra time like you know you just had to go back um so yeah I managed to kind of went a few kind of holidays so like I was, she was about eight months when I went back by which time we got the house our own house and you know we'd moved to the night the nicer area and we a very nice um child minder for the first little while and it was all kind of settling then you know and then I got pregnant <laughs> so
1: <laughs> and did you find the transition back to work difficult like did you find finding the work-life balance
2: no I, I didn't find it quite hard well I did in that Time management was a big issue because obviously, you know, you had to get out on time and traffic in Dublin and all of that stuff, like, you know, going down the M50. Uh, at, at half four quarter to five or five on any day is a nightmare you know so like to get to the child minder to pick her up for a certain time to get back home you know so I I liked being in work and I liked being at home but I didn't like the transitions I didn't cope with those very well I hated handing her over in the morning and I hated the stress of trying to get back to her in time to collect her and then have another drive then to get home that was very stressful um but the, obviously you know in an ideal world, you know, we, we would have much longer um, time mater- parental And
1: when you were, I suppose, I know you speak about your anxiety after um, your baby's born. Like, did anyone ever, like, ask you? Like, I know now we do in the three-month check with public health nurses, the GPs will ask. But, like, did you find there was any mental health support back then?
2: Well, I, there was an assumption that I wasn't anxious because I was a pediatrician, you know. Um, like, why would you be anxious about your perfectly healthy child? You can see there's nothing wrong with her, you know. So that that question wasn't asked, and I do think that sometimes doctors or healthcare professionals treat other healthcare yeah. professionals a little bit differently. So that conversation never came up. And also, I was like, well, if I say this, I'm going to sound really, really strange. So I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to say everything is fine, you know. Um, and it was very t- like I think it was probably kind of hormonal as well because like, you know. It, it just went away and it didn't happen the second time, you know? So it was very much kind of circumstantial life. First time mother, this whole matres- matrescence thing. Um, you know, the second time around, I wasn't becoming a mum for the first time.
1: And did you feel the second was an easier transition?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Different baby. But like, the other thing is like, I think myself and and baby number 1 even though we had an incredibly strong bond from the very beginning like I felt totally bonded to her um but we had a fractious relationship because she was colicky and I was anxious yeah. um and was she colicky because I was anxious or was I anxious because she was colicky I don't know that's the whole mother infant dyad thing where you're actually still very much one being you know um So it was tough, you know, Um, whereas the second one was kind of just horizontal.
1: And do you think then, because what you've been through as a mother, that you've changed your practices with regards to how you deal with parents?
2: Yeah, totally. And I mean, that is not to say that pediatricians without children don't make excellent pediatricians, because some of the the best pediatricians I know do not have kids. Um, I think it just... I I guess it gives you that slant, you know, where is this parent coming from? You know, what, like, what is it, you know, just trying to dig down to what their real worry is, as opposed to what they're presenting with, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that.
0: Yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. I want to pivot a bit and talk about the brilliant work that you do on social media, with the advocacy that you do, and also the information that you present to parents. And I know That a lot of the time, me and you have started chatting in DMs quite a lot about you know various topics. The first thing I want to ask you is, and I know you talked about how you started this. Correct me if I'm wrong. During COVID, what what made you want to do this?
2: I didn't want to do it. (laughs) So I was on Twitter a lot, and um, I you know I kind of tweet out you know do this, don't do that. You know this is how kids are affected, blah blah blah. And of course on Twitter it's it's like a boxing ring you know um because it was so divided amongst people who are saying yes you're absolutely right thank you very much and then people are going i'm going to complain you to the medical <laughs> council you know um so and that, i found that increasingly just stressful and pointless and uh, somebody else i know who's on instagram another doctor messaged me. She said you should try Instagram. You know, it's much nicer, much nicer environment, and you won't get the the hassle um, for the most part. <laughs> um, and just give it a go. And I said, like, okay, I will. So I put up a picture of a tree, and I said, stay within your five kilometer radius. You know, it's tough for everybody. Da da da. And that was it. I left it for about a week, and then I put up some story. I think about, I can't remember. Was it UTIs or something like that? And the next thing, like more and more people started like. Getting involved and saying, Oh, I never knew this and I never knew that. And I was like, And then I just realized that like parents really just want information and they want it in sort of easily digestible nuggets um, as opposed to being overwhelmed with like a website and saying, Click here for this, click here for that. They just want a human face. Like, I, I think what's interesting is like if you look at my child, the HSE My Child, which is a really good website, they have an Instagram page as well, but I have more followers than the HSE. And you do too, probably, Afif. Do you know what I mean? So it's like people want a human to be telling them stuff, not a website.
0: I actually, as a physician, sometimes find it hard to navigate those websites to get the information that I'm looking for. Because oftentimes when we discuss topics, myself and Katie, on, on this podcast... I want to make sure that I'm, you know, saying things that are in line with general health, um, uh, you know, uh, with the general recommendations and things like that. And it can be hard sometimes for me to find that. So let alone a parent actually trying to find that information.
2: To be fair, like the websites are very wordy. Um, They don't use images. They don't use videos. And, you know, you need a pretty high literacy level and competence in, in, in the English language to be able to navigate it. It's very much, uh, you know, if you had dyslexia now or something like that as well, those those pages and pages of words can be very, very, um, very challenging. Uh, So
1: when you look at a parent that doesn't have much time and they're in the throes of having a small baby or there's something wrong when they look at that, it's much easier when they go to your Instagram, they go, oh, brilliant, that's what I'm looking for.
2: Yeah. And I'll always like if I if I find the the appropriate segment on the HSE, I will always put the link, you know, so parents can go and double check if they want to but I think the way Instagram is laid out it's very digestible you know so it's a post or a reel and you know they put their comments underneath and then other people can come into the comments as well and support each other um so that's nice but I still I look at I'm still very ambivalent about it to be honest with you because like I have all of these followers um some of them agree with me some of them don't agree with me I'm never sharing my opinion really I'm sharing information if people have a different opinion that's that's a different thing you know so um it, it can be a bit tricky to to navigate it as well and look people people it's stressful everybody's stressed you know and I can understand when if they get a bit upset by some information I'm sharing
1: I suppose if anything I suppose as healthcare professionals we just give the information we're not instagrammers or you know bloggers our job no. our, our aim as I always say is just we give the information and then the parents can make their own informed mm. decisions when they're at home themselves
2: Yeah. But you see, so the HSE website does that too, but obviously it's not a person. Whereas if I'm the face saying do X or Y is not safe, then somebody who's, you know, been doing the opposite, they might feel that I'm kind of lecturing to them or being a bit preachy. um, Whereas that's not the intent. But it's it's very hard to get the balance because, you know... (laughs) when emotions come into it um you know and and the thing is like even though people might just type something out in anger that 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 it lands you know it's not like yeah you don't have feelings and you don't respond to to criticism you know
1: and i know you went you went off instagram you went on to tiktok do you find it an easier platform to use or
2: tiktok is the pits like it's um it's (laughs) it's the most it's like honest to god going into a nightclub at half past one at last orders it's chaos. Um, people will say the most horrible things but they're usually not your followers like TikTok is a very different model you know so it's you're just on a page and you come up across different people different people and sometimes what you're saying gets traction and people will react like randomly two weeks ago I put up a video saying I think we're gonna have bad weather this winter (laughs) it's just like it's a disgrace that you're saying that, you know, like stay in your lane kind of thing, you know. And it's like all the people who follow me normally are like, oh, that's really interesting. Why do you think that, you know? um Other things like, you know, just even oh God, there was something else I put up ages ago oh, about the botulism. I shared about botulism and like there were men coming into the comments going, F off, you know, all doctors are evil. This is another pandemic, you know, and it's just like with that though it feels less personal because it's such a chaotic environment anyway whereas if if the comments turn a bit sort of difficult in Instagram it feels a lot more personal. I was just
0: going to ask you about the differences between TikTok and Instagram because TikTok is this hole that I'm haven't really like I have a page but I never share anything on it and um, I'm on it just because um, I want to be able to know how to use it because my kids are beginning to use it and it, it's it's mm. interesting what you say in that people in Instagram sometimes go on the platform seeking information from you directly whereas if you're yeah. scrolling through TikTok you sort of are Im- are are uh, and, I'm, and I'm, n- I'm not using this word and uh, funny but you're sort of imposed on them sometimes isn't that right
2: yes yeah yeah and like, they'd be like, get off my FYP, like get off my, F- for you, yeah. page." And I'm like, I didn't put myself here. The algorithm yeah. did like, you know, you're
1: on it as well, Katie, I think, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I kind of opened it there. It's probably a year ago, but I'm very poor at actually posting. I've got about probably 8,000 followers, but I don't, know, I don't even get it. Like then the views are like in the hundreds of thousands. I was like, how do you have one or the other? But
0: but I think if we came yeah. on, Katie, and did a dance together, that'll, <laughs> no. that'll get so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No.
2: yeah. No, <laughs> not, the world needs that. Yeah. I'm definitely
0: getting <laughs> locked down if that's the case. Great. So in terms of then going forward, you're back you're back at work now, is that right? And you predominantly deal with neurological issues in babies.
2: Yeah. So yeah, so so if you want to talk like where I am now, um so I work uh, full time private practice in the Bond Square Hospital in Cork. So I do not I do not work in the CUH, so it's private only. Um, we have a, a ward, a children's ward there. Um, we take the same as, as any other pediatric unit i suppose we're comparable say to the mercy um in that we'll take the babies with bronchiolitis the gastros the sort of infections all of that kind of general pediatric stuff but then my neurology stuff it's nice working there because it's very easy to get mri scans EEGs, blood tests all of that kind of stuff so the diagnostic side of it is very strong so there, there's that. And then I do about once a month, I do a, a HSE clinic in Limerick as well. Oh,
1: wow. So can people just turn up in Cork? I know we see this on your Instagram, all the time, but it is open as an A&E.
2: Uh, it's a pediatric assessment unit so um so the gp needs to refer them in so sort of nine to five monday to friday they come in by the pediatric assessment unit if they're coming in out of hours the gp just needs to make a call there are some things that we can't take like so very small babies with respiratory distress say under six months just because of the size of equipment and things like that that we have uh we say it's probably better because generally the bronchiolitis under six months they can kind of go either way um and if they go the wrong way then you're kind of asking an ambulance to come from dublin to take them up and it's just um whereas they can escalate a bit more in cuh so we generally tend to send those small babies we will deflect those to the to the bigger um centers but uh other than that then out of hours say i get a call like a typical call would be, um, you know, oh, a GP's on the phone. The child's been febrile for four days. Her oral intake is poor. She's a little bit dehydrated. Can she come in I say yes? You know, so those kind of things. Sometimes they come in, they're fine. Sometimes they come in and they have meningitis. You just don't know what's going to come
1: in. And was there any major reason why you went into private practice versus the HSE? Was it family life?
2: Yeah, a bit that and a bit. Um, I just didn't manage to get a HSE job in Cork. Um, so I'd moved down to do a research job here, actually, in the natal neurology. And then I was casting about trying to get a, a, a consultant post, but there just weren't the jobs here. Um, but so I, I actually got a job in Belfast, and I was, I was about three weeks away from moving, and I got a call from the Bonds, um, because one of their paediatricians had retired, and I'd already interviewed for the Bonds, so I'd been panelled, and they were like, "Do you want a job?" And I was like, "Oh my God, I've just picked out the schools for the kids, and you know where we're going to live, and all of that," and the next thing, at the last minute. The job came up in Cork and like it was kind of a no brainer, yeah. really, because the kids are still very small and uh, I wanted to be with my family. Um, so because my husband isn't, his family isn't in Ireland, you know, it was good to be with one family. So that's that that was the, the decision. And that was 12 years ago. So
1: you're happy. You're a Cork woman
2: to the core.
1: Um, I suppose looking at what advice would you give parents that are starting out on their parenting journey um, in advance of having them? And maybe that they're still in a career, like they're in maybe sole employment that they're, um, I suppose, maybe having to go back to work um, earlier than planned. Would you have any advice?
2: I guess don't fool yourself that it's going to be easy because it's not. Um, You have to be kind to yourself. Uh, Get the support when it's offered. Like, so certainly for me, that was something that I had to learn was to accept help when it was offered. And like, say, Kira, my friend Kira, reaching out to me and offering help I would have previously gone, oh, I'm grand, I'm grand, you know, whereas I did accept her offer and I was really glad that I did, you know, and that was the first step in kind of building my own support network in Dublin. Um, you know, if people offer to help, just just take it. Um, it's They're not doing it from a, they're doing it from a really good place and, um And it's a it's a gift then to pass on to sort of pay that forward, you know, so that it is hard. It's hard. And, you know, the other thing, I suppose, is that you don't always click with your baby straight away, you know. Um, So the first baby was like, click. But, but you know, she was she was a. Well, she probably thought I was a challenging mother, even though know, she couldn't <laughs> express herself, you know, but the second baby was very, very relaxed, but it, it took a little bit longer for the, you know, the, that click feeling that you get, you know, so it's different with every baby and don't feel, I suppose, don't feel bad if you don't, f- when the bond is there, you know, it's there. Like it's, it's almost a tangible thing going from your heart to theirs. Uh, and and you know it because you know it when it's not there you also know it's not there but if you unless you're feeling that real bond it maybe hasn't developed yet but don't worry because it, it will come but it, it will come faster if you have that support um and obviously your partner as well like and take the help from them too you know and also ask them to do things you know so like i would have been very much there's no point in being a martyr yeah. do you know what i mean like you know, oh my God, I can't believe he's gone out with his friends again. Like, you know, it's like, no, just tell him. Like, I need you to stay in and do X, Y, and Z. Because the thing is that there isn't, like, even though much as much as you like to think that you and your partner have a really close relationship, they're not telepathic. Yeah. You know, and you, you know, you do have to definitely before you go back to work, sort of lay out what are your roles? What are my roles? Do we have flexibility? Are there days when you can collect them instead of me if I get held up at work, you know, and vice versa? And a bit of flexibility as well, assuming you're in a situation where, the, where partners around, you know.
1: I, I totally agree. I think we we have to lean on people at times and be open, because in fairness, a lot of the time our partners just don't know what we're thinking you know, as much as we think they do. And we can get annoyed with them. And
2: and then, you know, then I'm like hitting the sort of perimenopause now. Like, God love him. Like, (laughs) do you know, like he doesn't know what's going on in here. Like he, and neither do I, but like, um, I, I just have to articulate what I can figure out, you know, because otherwise he's kind of like, what? like what's wrong with her, you know? So you have to, you do have to sort of keep keep the dialogue going
1: and I think we're getting better at being open with our partners and evening out chores and I say you know the chores for both of us we're both working so there's a working mom and working dad so
2: yeah yeah and we're very egalitarian in this house as well to be fair he does a lot um, so like, I have no, like no qualms or quibbles there at all, but I do think in the early days where I was kind of going around with the sad face, you know, cause I was breastfeeding and I was this and I was that, and I was feeling very sorry for myself, you know, but he was lonely then because like, I was so caught up in this dynamic with the, the baby, he was kind of left out. And so, you know, you have to let them come in and let them help as well. Cause you know, dads have you know, the, the stats for dads and mental health after a baby comes along are, are pretty, pretty tough to, to read as well. You know, dads do get postnatal depression and anxiety as well. So you have to sort of maybe take your head out of your own little bubble every so often, you know.
0: Neve, thank you so much for this very, very riveting conversation. And Two things that you mentioned here in the sort of latter stages of the interview is the fact that you don't necessarily have to feel this undying, unconditional love for your baby immediately, that it does take time and that is normal and it's okay to actually go through that experience. And it's something that I think a lot of parents do experience and that they feel, Excellent. is there something wrong with me? For not feeling what I'm supposed to be feeling here and that's yeah. completely okay and then you also bring up the fact that dads can also go through mental issues and difficulties in the early new in the early period following delivery as well so that's really important to emphasize. Thank you so much for giving us your time we know that you're extremely busy we are so grateful and um, we really really enjoyed this chat. Thanks guys
2: thanks Amelia. Thank thanks Mel Neve.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey.
1: Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.